Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Post-Military Podcast. First, hope you like the new version of me without a hat on. I felt like showing off the flow for this one. Today on the show, we have Austin Sanders, who was an officer in the 75th Ranger Regiment before quickly separating from the service in order to move to Okinawa with his wife, who works in medicine for the United States Air Force. Due to his quick transition, Austin has a very interesting story where he had to adapt quickly and ended up exploring many different opportunities to include nonprofit work in the Philippines, and coaching high school football in Okinawa. Austin now works in Palantir technology in the defense tech sector. As you dive into Austin's story, I would encourage you to check the description of the episode to see the timestamps I've included so that you can navigate to any specific parts that may interest you. Finally, if you enjoy the content, liking, sharing, and subscribing on your preferred platform would be greatly appreciated. Thanks so much for your time, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Solemnly swear. To solemnly swear. That I will support and defend. That I will support and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Post-Military Podcast, the podcast where we give you life stories and advice on how to better transition to the next chapter of your life. With me today is a friend, Austin Sanders. Austin, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely, Billy. Thanks for having me. Been excited for this. Where are you coming out of? So I'm in the D.C. area. I'm on the Virginia side, though. Okay. So Northern Virginia. Many a cyber person that I knew back in the day disappeared into places there for hours at a time every <laughs> single day. So yeah, it's stuff definitely happens. somewhere you can get locked. Let's dive in. Tell everyone out there about your military career. Yeah, absolutely. So I. My Army career started when I joined ROTC at Duke University. I actually went in on an, on an ROTC scholarship. So from start to finish, I was involved there. You know, did, did four years there. ROTC is a little bit of a better, easier path, you could say, during the college years than, than some of the academies. So I know you had a slightly different experience. See, my counterpoint to that is you knew how to be an actual functioning adult in society when you graduated. And I graduated with a bunch of people who didn't know what bills were. So like, you know, kind of, kind of depends. Do you want like a fully functioning adult out of the box who just didn't get to do like, I don't know, skydiving over the summer? Or do you want someone who did fake survival training, but has no idea how to feed themselves? Like, like, so let's, I don't know. I don't know which one is better. No, no, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Yeah. Um, How much do you hate? The University of Northern Cal- or Northern Carolina. North Carolina. So North Carolina, whatever it is. US. Yeah, you know, I, I respect them, but I, I do despise them in every sport. I mean, even if it's a sport I don't watch on a daily basis, you know, I'm making sure like, okay, Duke, UNC, they're playing in field hockey. You know, having me keeping up with it, but Duke better win because uh, I've got, okay. man, my boss at work, he went to UNC, and so he likes to rag on me any chance he gets. So, yeah, wow. it's it, it's tough, oh. and, you know, I'm... I'm Duke blue blooded down to the core. So I, I just hope we beat them. In I love it. So did you know in ROTC that you were going to go infantry or was that something that happened later? Yeah. So I think that was always the plan. I mean, I, I don't come from a, a military family. I have, I had a very limited understanding of what the, you know, 18 or so branches of the army did. I just decided, you know, we had a guy that was two years he was two years older than us in the ROTC program, who was a, he made it to like Sergeant first class in, in, in the Ranger regiment. 
And then he decided to go and, and commission through the green to gold program. So I just saw this guy, he was an infantry guy and I saw him and I was like, well, that guy's pretty cool. The infantry seems like the cool spot to be. They do really hard stuff. They all love it. You know, they're the tip of the spear. And so I just naturally from the time I was a freshman, I was like, yeah, we got to go infantry. There's no other option. Got to go infantry. So that was kind of the, 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 what made me gravitate towards the infantry. Was that dude like bored out of his mind after being a first sergeant in the ranger regiment and then going to college? Like, so I don't even, I can't even imagine what that would be. Yeah. He, he was in actually a master's program. I think he already had his undergrad. So he did a two years masters while he was doing green to gold and commissioned. But yeah, he, he would get pretty frustrated pretty easily with all the cadets. And we were a smaller program. We had like 60 in total, but I mean, like you couldn't, you couldn't get people to show up to PT some mornings. People always showing up late, you know, pants not tucked into their boots. People just, you know, forgetting to wear their patrol crap as they're like walking around campus. And I mean, he, he, he had to, uh, you've got some dude who's actually been in combat. He just, he just spent, you know, 12 years in combat with some of the most disciplined guys in the entire military and then he, he comes over to a bunch of cadets who ge- just genuinely have no idea what's going on and they're just here yeah. for a good time and uh, yeah so it was funny to watch him try to maintain his composure I imagine so oh that's hilarious so you commission and you go out to what do they call your like tech school or your yeah. training your infantry tra- infantry basic officer leaders course so i bullock that's okay. our you okay. know four month four month course to get fun up on, you know, small unit tactics, everything up to the platoon level, and then just kind of like learn about your day-to-day as a junior officer in an infantry unit. Very cool. And then once you finished that training, where did you go next? Yeah. So five, graduated from that five days later, I went to ranger school. So yeah, graduated there. And then I was, I was done at Fort Benning, luckily. What's ranger school like? Ranger school, great. I mean, it depends on who you ask and how long they were lucky enough to spend there. But I went at a pretty good time where it wasn't too hot, wasn't too cold, got a little cold at the end, but you know, it was, it was a good time of the year. I had, had a great, had a great group around me from start to finish. We had a, a really strong squad. You know, you, you have like this mix of brand new lieutenants who've only been to Ibolic. You've got a bunch of junior Rangers, you know, private first class specialists who've spent a year or two in the Ranger regiment now you know, they're bouncing over to ranger school. So they have some pretty cool experience. They're young, but they, you know, they know, they know more than the average soldier. And then you've got a mix of NCOs from the big army who have a lot of really cool experience. They're a lot older, more mature. So it's, it's nice to find a group of guys and you're organized into, into squads generally from, from start to finish that, that mesh really well. And you can, you can balance each other out where one person has experiences and can, can help, you know, with, with the, the in-depth planning. Another one's good at, you know, maintaining control when it's, you know, five in the morning, you know, no one's gotten any sleep and you still got to execute a mission. So we just had a real good group of guys that were able to stick it out. And so, yeah, it was overall good experience, learned a lot from it. And I think for me, it was a really big turning point individually of just like being a tougher person. So it just helped set me up once I, you know, went out to my first, you know, real army unit. And where was that first army unit at? So Fort Campbell with the 101st. Airborne Division. Is that in Kentucky? St. Louis, Kentucky. It's right on the Tennessee-Kentucky border, just an hour okay. northwest of Nashville. And it's a baller. It's a baller location to get stationed at for your first base. It's great. I'm from Nashville too, so. Well, congrats. Yeah, all my, like all my were... buddies were back in Nashville, so. 
made for some good weekend I love trips. That. I love the Smoky Mountains. I think it's probably my favorite place in America, if I'm to be yeah. honest with you. Like, yeah, right where Eastern Tennessee touches like Western North Carolina. I'm like, that's like, that's like the most pretty, that's the most beautiful place. Ever. Oh yeah. I made that drive like four Maybe. or five times a year during college. So my <laughs> wife went to college too yeah. in Knoxville. So oh, yeah, cool. definitely a beautiful area. So how long were you at Fort Campbell with the 101st? I was there for almost two years. I spent time in the, in the old three shop, the operation shop. So, you know, planning, you know, long planning out, you know, nine months in advance for, for big training exercise exercises, but all the way down to like the near term, you know, managing, you know, the commander's daily calendar down to like the hour level or minute level. So that was a, that was a good spot to learn. I was there for about nine months, but was very eager to actually get down, you know, on the line as a platoon leader. Cause that's where you're going to have the most fun as a, as a junior officer. And so at this time, were you married? Or I was single. Were you still, yeah. still I was single, single as young as like 22 you. years old, just no problem working, you know, 15, 16 hour <laughs> days. You know, just, Crazy yeah, hours. Yeah. Just a way of life. So then, and so what did you do after uh, you finished up at uh, Campbell? Yeah. So towards the end of my Fort Campbell time, I went to RASP to Ranger Assessment Selection Program to, to move over to 3rd Ranger Battalion, where I spent two years. What did you do while you were there? So I got there and, and deployed pretty much immediately. I deployed twice as a, as a targeting officer. And then back in the rear, I was a platoon leader for a few months. And then I was also a, an executive officer for, I guess, just over a year. Did you enjoy your time while you were, while you were in third range? Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, it, it'll probably stand forever as like the greatest, you know, job I've ever had, like the greatest experience just being surrounded by some of the most inspirational guys on a daily basis who, who've dedicated their life you know, to, to a very, very special mission. They're disciplined in, in every aspect of their life. And then they're just absolutely physical specimens. You know, what they can do in the weight room and, and, and out on the five mile course is, is just, it's, it really is incredible. So yeah, I loved every second of it. Very professional organization. If I could stay there forever, you know, I'd probably still be there, but yeah, it, it was an honor of a lifetime. And, and I was lucky to have been able to serve there for two years. That's super cool. Were the, uh, were the gyms at the, were the gyms at your unit sick? Oh, yeah, we had some sick gyms. Was it like, yeah. Yeah. Third Rangers sponsored by like Rogue Fitness, <laughs> like that, that kind of deal. I I mean, it looked, you had a, it, it looked like a D1 athletic facility, just, you know, racks Dude. on racks on racks all the way down the gym. And then a good little outdoor turf yeah. area with, with little makeshift O course. I realized how different things were in different areas of the military when I went to go try out for a unit at Fort Bragg and I went on to the JSOC compound and they had converted an entire aircraft hangar into their gym and I walked in there and it was like the nicest gym I've ever seen in my entire life and I was, I was like, ah, this is what money this is what it looks like when a unit has all of the money. Then I ended up trying to get joint spouse with my wife, which was the right move. But then I got stationed at Keesler Air Force Base in Mississippi, and their gym was much less nice than that. And I was always like, man, yeah. that gym was sick. <laughs> well, if, if there's any taxpayers concerned about you know how, how the military is using this money, let me tell you, the, the Rangers were getting best use out of every single penny spent on that weightlifting <laughs> equipment. They were using oh, every piece it. of equipment in that gym. Could be absolute it. animals. So it's get, it's getting yeah. properly used. 
every ranger that I met when I was in service was absolutely stacked. And I was like, man, these guys are huge. So these are some scary dudes. So that's awesome. So then did you, so you're coming up on your, so at the end of your two years at third Rangers, that's because ROTC is four to four year commitment. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Generally you have about four years. Okay. And so were you coming up on to the end of that commitment and what did you do next? Yeah. So it, it really was an interesting time. So early 2020, I was actually in Afghanistan when the whole COVID breakout happened. At the time we had, I, my wife and I had, my wife now we were dating at the time we had been together for, you know, a year and a half. We decided she, she was in a program to direct commission called HPSB. She was getting her doctor of nursing practice. And then she was set to direct commission and, and go active duty air force in August of 2020. So we had this grand plan. Hey, you know, once you, when you get your list, let's preference stuff close to Fort Benning at the top. I'm going to get, I'm going to convince the commander to let me stay at, at third ranger battalion and, and Benning for an additional year. You know, we'll do a, and then I'll have to go to triple C at Fort Benning. You know, I'll stay at Benning two years while you're near Benning for two years. And then we'll be married by that point. And we'll, we have this perfect plan. And then we can go to Colorado together or we can go to, you know, Seattle together or Hawaii or Italy. And like, it's going to be this great grand old plan. So it worked at first. I got to sign off to say at Fort, at Fort Benning. She got stationed. At, she was set to be stationed at Tyndall Air Force Base got orders, went down there, signed a lease on an apartment. So we were going to be about a three hour drive apart. I was going to spend every weekend at the beach. It was going to be great. Obviously the military has other plans. There's, there's so much that's, that's out of your control being in the military. She got a call one day and they said, Hey, needs of the air force. We need you in Okinawa. So at this point I was fully committed to staying in for at, at least two to three more years. Uh, I think in my heart, I knew that I probably would have gotten out at the seven or eight year mark point. So when, when she got this, this call, got this assignment, you know, we, we fought it for a few weeks, but we weren't engaged. We weren't married at the time. So we, we had no leverage in actually getting the orders changed. And so, yeah, I just, I decided after a few weeks of resistance that I needed to stop trying to control this entire path, right? Like I was trying to control our future. We were trying to set everything up perfectly. And that's when I kind of like let go. I was like, all right, God's got a bigger plan. I need to stop fighting back against everything that is happening in our lives. And I decided, Hey, this is, I think this is a sign that it's my time to transition out of the army and, and, and find something else. And in doing that, it would, it would allow me to, to move out to Okinawa with her. So no shotgun marriages. Oh, no, no we got, the, uh, no we had, we did get the shotgun marriage. So we, we, we waited, she went to OTS or whatever the air force does. And then Octo- late October, because it was still COVID time, if there was no shot, Japan was going to let me into that country unless we had a marriage license. So we, we did a, a shotgun, shotgun one. It is very disappointing. Let me tell you, coming back from deployment in 2020, May 2020, I had the yurt locked down in Montana, the yurt Airbnb right outside of Glacier National Park. You know, we were going to have been at a homestead and outside of Bozeman. This was like a little before Montana was so cool too, as well. But yeah, COVID ruined it all, ruined my perfect engagement plan. So yeah, we just had to do a shotgun wedding. You know, just our family was there. We had a good little party a couple of days later with friends in, in Nashville. And then yeah, two days later, Jacqueline shipped off to, to Okinawa. 
Dang. That's, uh, I mean, I'm sorry that that happened. My, my wife and I got shotgun married as well to facilitate us getting stationed together when we were coming out. I was going out of cyber school and uh, we were like, we'll just get married. So they'll put us together. I'll stay at Keesler or something like that. And then they were like, ha ha, psych, you're going to Oklahoma city. And so then my wife stayed and then we did our first year and a half apart. So I, yeah, that's uh, tough, man. I, I definitely get it where you're just like, I mean, yours is way worse. Like you had to get out and uh, your wife went to Japan. Yeah. She, and she, <laughs> she had to leave without me because the timeline was so tight. I mean, I couldn't Crazy. get out for another couple months and I, ex I expedited yeah. my ETS process as much as possible, but still, you know, mm -hmm. she had to, she had to be out there for almost two months without me. And so then. For you expediting your ETS, I, I talk to a lot of people on this show, and one of the big things that's all that always comes up is you want to have time to prepare to really identify the gaps, fill fill those gaps, come up with plans for employment, understanding like how you're going to build community, like all these different things. And you, I'm assuming, had none of that. And so, what what was your transition experience like? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you hear it, you know, you, you want to start planning these things 12 months in advance. You want to have a plan, you know, they're like, don't get out unless you know, you've got your job lined up, which it's all great advice, but it kind of in line with what I was saying just a second ago. It was like, I just realized that, Hey, I'm not in control of this situation. I need to take a step back and be okay with the fact that I'm not going to be able to set up this perfect ETS plan. I'm not going to have a job the day that I stepped foot in Japan in Okinawa. I'm not. Um, and I'm just going to have to take it one day at a time and, and, and it'll figure itself out. With that being said, you know, when, when you're about to go be a dependent to a captain in the air force in Okinawa, you have that luxury there. There's, there's not this, this foot on my back of saying, Hey, you got to get a job now to pay the bills, to support your family. So I, I, I acknowledge that I had a, a very good situation to, handle the fact that I did not have a plan. True. Counterpoint to that though, as a husband, I'm sure you still felt that way. Like I'm over here hanging out at the house in Oki and my wife's going to work and I'm just like, what am I? Yeah. I don't know. But it's, uh, I don't I, I think that I, you, you have a very humble rep, like response to it, but I would also say that um, you seem like a guy who would be, who wants to take responsibility. And so I would imagine that it was, it was a little bit yeah. hard to, to work through that. No, it, it was, so. it, it was tough. I mean, my, my wife said she's a rock star and she was very supportive and never for a second was going to poke fun at me or put any pressure on me, but there, there still was that internal pressure. And I was just trying to like, churn out opportunities. I started, you know, trying to get just random, you know, certifications, you know, to make myself more hireable, but it all in all gave me a couple months to kind of figure out what I wanted to do long-term. So it worked, it ended up working out really well. One thing that you said was you recognize that you let go of the control, which I think is really mature. I think that most people, including myself, when I was getting out, I had a really hard time like I stressed about things that were so out of my control. It was crazy. Like it was really bad for you. It's one thing to say that, but what did you do 
in like in those moments where things got you know bumpy or things didn't go your way how did you reinforce that belief so to i don't know drop your blood pressure or to keep yourself calm in those less than good moments during your transition yeah I would like to sit here and say that I always, you know, was able to maintain that, you know, humble, composed approach. But then again, you know, there were times where I was pretty pissed off because, you know, I'd applied for some GS job and my application didn't even make it to the hiring manager because I didn't meet the qualifications based on some questionnaire that the government did beforehand. You know, if, if you've ever applied for a GS job, you understand that there's some gates to get through that don't exactly have anything to do with how qualified you are for a position. And I, I was pretty pissed off. And it would, I would have to go let out some steam. But I think just overall, you know, trying to maintain that faith of, hey, there, there's, there's something bigger in the works here. Just keep, keep pushing forward and keep, you know, unturning every rock out there. And you're going to find the right connection, you know, the right, the right piece of advice, you know, the right job opportunity, the right job board that has that one, you know, skill or qualification on it that you start looking into. And that skill or qualification that you decide that you want to take a step towards opens up doors that you never thought that would have been there. So yeah, I mean, just trying to hold on to that faith and keep moving forward and keep doing stuff to, you know, make yourself a little bit more, a little bit more well-rounded, I think for the most part, especially being an infantry guy, don't have a lot of tangible skills. That's something that I want to get into. I mean, we can talk about it right now, honestly, now that you've done it, We'll get to what you did when you were out of the military. What advice do you give guys who are in the infantry now to like, it's such a hard pivot. Like really, unless you become private security or I mean, like law enforcement, even then law enforcement still kind of a shift. Anything that you do will most likely be a pretty crazy pivot. So what advice do you give? Would you give to guys guys and gals now who are in those career fields that aren't, that don't have that really clear one-to-one right out of the gate. Yeah. I'll take a step back a little bit. And this is just to, to give to highlight an organization that I had worked with, you know, called Three Rangers Foundation. It's really Three Rangers Foundation, Ranger for Life. And they just have an incredible mentorship program to help connect you with guys all the way from, you know, 25, just getting out of service with the Rangers all the way up to the retired 70 year old guys who got out of, got out of the army and had a, an entire 30 year career on top of that. And so getting involved with an organization like that, that could connect you to, to mentors and to individuals with all sorts of life experiences was crucial. A lot of the people in this, in this mentor network, they had an infantry background. And so for me, and what I see with a lot of infantry guys is they don't know what's out there, right? Like they don't understand the, the different industries, what they actually look like. What would your day-to-day look like as a strategic consultant? What would your day-to-day look like as an accountant? You know, that no one really knows what that means. So if you're looking at, okay, hey, what is going to be my next step? Like, what, what do I want to do as my next profession? You've got to find people to talk to and understand what they do on a day-to-day basis. You know, what does it mean to be in defense tech? What, what does that mean? I had no idea. I could tell you what I thought it meant, but in reality, actually hearing someone who talked about what they did on a daily basis, that that's where I was able to understand, okay, these are the different careers that are out here. Here is something that I might actually want to pursue. And so you, you've got to get that piece right first. Like 
I see a lot of guys who just decide, Hey, I'm getting out. All right. I'm in the infantry. I was in the infantry. Don't have a lot of skills. What are they, what, what's everyone doing to, to my left and right? Okay. They're, they're going to go get an MBA. I'm going to go get an MBA and nothing against MBA. I mean, that's obviously going to open up a ton of doors. You're going to get exposure to all different industries and, and, and possible careers. But I think it's because as an infantry, you just don't, you don't really know what's out there. So if you can have those conversations earlier, it can, it could possibly shape your path and, and maybe you can jump into a new job, a, a new career field straight out of the military, as opposed to feeling like you have to go back to school for two years to set yourself up for your next job. There is an amazing opportunity to pivot like you just highlighted. And there also is nothing wrong with going to school, back to school to facilitate that pivot. I think that the thing that you said that I really like is don't just go do something because the person next to you did it. And I think that too many people, instead of going the hard route of actual self-exploration and figuring out who they want to be outside of the military, they just do what someone else did because it's there. It's easy. You're in the military, so you're used to going off of a predetermined strategic playbook. And so we're really good at following directions if the path is laid out before us and there's nothing wrong with any specific life path. If you went through the steps to figure out that it was right for you and not just, this is the thing that Austin did and that looks cool. So I'll just do what Austin did too. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for you, you get out, you get into Okinawa, you're applying for jobs. What was that time in Okinawa like for you? Yeah. So I, I guess one, one quick thing to add, I said, I didn't have a job going to Okinawa. I actually had lined up an unpaid internship for a, a little, a little nonprofit, non-government organization that did some, does some really cool work in the Philippines. So, you know, quick quick story on, on why you should always, what I say is like, Hey, shoot off that email, shoot off that LinkedIn message, have that conversation. Cause you never know which, what conversation is going to start. That's going to lead to the opportunity of a lifetime. And so, you know, I, I, through the three Rangers foundation, I'd probably talked to, I had 15 meetings all, all rushed, you know, in, in that fall while I was still in the army to just try to get a grasp on like, what am I supposed to do next? And what opportunities are in Okinawa? have all these conversations. People are, you know, I'm getting some incredible leads. Hey, look here. Hey, Booz Allen, Lidos. They own a ton of contracts in Okinawa. Boom, boom, getting shot all over the place. There's some cool opportunities with one, one special forces battalion contractor gigs. Look, look here, look there. I'm getting, I'm getting some great information. And then, you know, one Tuesday night, my roommate is like, Hey, I'm going to go get dinner with some of my, my friends from the maneuver captain's career course, which is what you do at the tail end of your junior officer career as you're moving into being a captain. I was like, I don't know any of these guys, but yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go get some wings. So I talking to a dude who is, had some experience working with one of the special forces battalion. It's based out of Okinawa and he was an intelligence officer, augmentee for one of their rotations, training rotations down to the Philippines. And, you know, we're just chatting he's telling me, he's like, yeah, you should reach out to some of the, some of their, I have some of their you know, officer leadership emails, reach out to them, see what kind of contractor opportunities there are. And he's like, Hey, but you might be interested in this one, this one group I talked to, there's this, there's this NGO down there that does some really incredible work it's just with some of the most vulnerable populations in all the Philippines. And they, 
They have a great local team that has access all over the place. It's, it's, they're just doing some unique stuff and you should check them out. And he gave me the, the, the information of the organization. I look them up. The founder went to Duke, uh, was army, army special operations. I think he was in psyops, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, had worked for Palantir in like two, 2013, 2014, running across Afghanistan, helping, helping the state department. And then he started his own NGO. And I was like, oh, I'm reaching out to this guy. This guy has some sweet experience. And so, you know, we, we, we hit it off and, and I was able to, to start with them mostly in, in like a research capacity for a few months to look at how we can implement some community development projects that we were looking to kick off in a pilot format down in the Philippines. So that was kind of like, I went into Okinawa with something. That being said, it was an unpaid internship, very much just trying to get some experience and, and it. In the moment, I was like, let's just get something on the resume. I don't want the gap on my resume. I don't want the gap on my resume. But as I'll dig into it, it ended up being an opportunity that I stuck with for, for quite a long time. Yeah, and I would almost say that having a driving purpose, whether that's a job or an NGO or raising a family or something, having some kind of purpose when getting out of the military is almost more important than getting paid, in my opinion. Because I'm, I'm now the evolved opinion after having a, enough of these conversations with people that you can be sad and make money, but if you have a purpose, you can all, you can be broke and have a purpose. Like you can, you can, you can exist without money. You can't, it's tough to exist without a purpose. And so I almost feel like that was more of a blessing for you because you didn't need the money because your wife was getting paid in this seems like a really cool thing that you got to do to really invest yourself in a good cause, especially coming right out of the military. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm right there with you, Billy, on, on everything you just said. And that's a tough lesson for, for most, most people to learn and understand is just not feeling like you have to, to chase that paycheck and, and really finding, finding work that kind of aligned with your purpose and your passion. And so that's ended up what, what happened here. So I, I think what you had asked before, I, kind of went down that rabbit hole is what did that time look like? So those, those first few months in Okinawa, we'll call it like January to February. I gave it like two, two hard months of trying to find jobs, whether it was a GS position, which is just like being a government civilian or being a contractor in some capacity. I got connected with some, you know, through, through the three Rangers foundation. I'm telling you, they just have a, a massive network with connections all over the place. I was able to go see some of the stuff, some Booz Allen contracts were doing and in some engineering spot in one of the Marine camps on base. And, you know, I went and met them, saw some of the stuff they were doing. And I just went home and I told my wife, I'm like, I'm not going to be happy working a job like that. I feel like I'm chasing this dead end for no reason. And I'm wasting all this energy finding, trying to force myself into finding a job on this island that I'm not going to be happy with. And that isn't going to make me feel full of purpose at the end of each day. And so it, it took some brain, it took some long, some long talks with, with a lot of people that I really looked up to to determine, Hey, let's, let's run. Let's, let's stay with this, this, this nonprofit with this NGO is called Impul Project. Let's stick it out with Impul Project. We gained some, gained some pretty cool momentum, starting to build some good relationships in the first couple of months that I was in this unpaid internship. You know, let's, let's roll this. Let's, let, let me try to see if I can come on in, in some more permanent capacity with Impul. And then I'm going to go back to school. And the, the school part was motivated by a couple conversations I had with mentors who really hit on the fact that 
I saw this firsthand in the military is, you know, we, we've got all these companies developing some pretty cool technology. You know, we, we've got all these different predictive models, AI models that are, that are starting to help, help the military, you know, just understand the battlefield a little bit more efficiently, but not all the big companies that can provide these services necessarily want to do business with the military. And so there's a demand for people with these skills to to work for companies that actually want to support the, the Department of Defense and, and the U.S. government at large. And so as I started to look at some of these positions for, for these companies in defense tech, I realized pretty quickly that I didn't have any of these skills. <laughs> I'm reading through the skills. I'm like, all right, Python, never seen Python. SQL, what is SQL? What is school? Don't know what school is. SQL, what's SQL? Yeah, don't know. But I'm, I'm reading these things and I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't know any of this. It's, it's, it's either a, a you know, prerequisite or a nice to have for a lot of these positions, even if they're, you know, more, more business development focused, you know, it's, it's time for me to, to go dig in and, and understand, you know, kind of like the underlying, underlying connections that a lot of this, this software and these models are actually built on. And so I, I started at a, a master's of information and data science. T Berkeley had a great virtual setup and they've been running the virtual thing through their school of information for like 10 plus years before COVID. So, you know, once COVID happened, it was just a perfect fit for a lot of people who were looking to further their career. A lot of people do the program while they're still working full-time. And so that's, I started that in, in, I think May, the May, May, 2021. And so I decided, Hey, we're going to be here for, you know, another year and a half. I'm going to, I'm going to complete this master's. I'm going to gain some tangible skills while I'm in line with, with doing some pretty cool community development work down in the Philippines. And I was pretty excited about that. And I realized, you know, it, while it took me a few months to come to that conclusion, I was realizing one, I was setting myself up for a future, a future job that I knew that I was really going to enjoy and be passionate about while also doing something that was extremely fulfilling in the near term. One thing that I, that I'm interested in is I have this really interesting thing that pops up on my YouTube algorithm all the time where I watch shorts on food in Japan. Where was your favorite place to eat while you were on the island? Ooh, man. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say my go-to was a little, a little poke spot oh, right, right down the road. There was, a, there was a good bit of Hawaiian influence in Okinawa. And some of the yeah. poke, it was like Hawaiian spots. But I mean, in reality, you're just eating the freshest tuna and salmon caught, caught right so offshore. So that was, oh, that was my go-to. Sounds so good. I, I, part of me wants my wife to get stationed out there just so I can see what's up, but part of me does not. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see what actually happens. But, um, do it. I mean, absolutely do it. Go for it. It's great. I mean, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll hit you up. I'll hit you up if it happens. I hung with some Air Force guys out there. Yeah. The, uh, we're tight. We're cool. We're cool people. But uh, no, more likely she'll actually get stationed in DC next. I get to go West Coast to East Coast. But when you were interviewing for jobs, like I said before, you're really, you seem like a really humble guy, like really, really, you talk a lot about how you're fortunate to be where you are. You work with great people. And I think that all of that is very true. How did you, how did you go from that to when you're, I mean, when you were interview, when you interview, it kind of has to be like the Austin show where you have to talk about how you're the shit. How did you handle that when you're doing interviews with companies? Well, I've admittedly 
done very few interviews. I am. Okay. Yeah. I am not. The first time, the first round of, of job applications, I was hit with a lot of hard no's before, you know, even getting to the hiring manager. And so not a lot of interviewing experience there. And then, you know, come back second round, you know, when we were moving back to stateside, I, I was just very lucky in the way that, you know, things, things had worked out in, in the hiring process. And, you know, I would say, you know, I ended up landing what was my dream job. I was listening to some, one of the guys you had on recently and they're like, I put all my eggs in one basket. And I was like, I kind of did the same thing, but it, you know, it, it, it definitely worked out well. So, I mean, but to answer your question, yeah, it's, you have to, I mean, you have to be able to sell yourself. And I, I, I don't think you should like lose track of the, the, the humility and like ability to connect with the other person aspect of the interview. I think sometimes in interviews, the interviewee wouldn't maybe get the interviewer would maybe get annoyed because I'm like asking them questions about themselves. <laughs> maybe that was just me trying to be a little bit more comfortable in the situation, but I wanted, I wanted to try to make it a dialogue and a back and forth as opposed to me just talking. But at the same time, from my experience is like, if someone's interviewing you, they, like they want to see you as a real person. They want to see, see you as authentic. So if you're showing some of that, that's good. And, and I've said in an interview before, Hey, you may, you probably hear this all the time. You may not believe me. But I really feel tied to, to like the purpose and the values of this company of just, you know, wanting to make the world a better place. And so, you know, I, I've said that and like, and I, I do mean that like genuinely from, from the bottom of my heart, but it, it is, it is a tough, a tough balance because I don't want to be seen as someone who's just putting some fluff out there except what they think will, will get them hired. Sometimes I am too authentic. And I think most people I've worked for has, have told me that. Have you found that as a to be a problem now that you're working at the company that you're working at now that admittedly hires a lot of veterans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so to that end, like I, I am authentic. I, I will wear my emotions on my sleeve, which means, you know, I have a lot of passion. I do have a lot of emotion. So that will work in your favor at some points, but it also is, will, will be like one, one of my, one of my biggest weak points. And I would say that's probably common for a lot of, a lot of military guys, especially when you're talking about what your, your mission is on a daily basis in the military, it is emotional. Some of the best leaders I have that being said, we're very unemotional about everything, but it is so hard to detach emotionally from what you're doing. And it's, it's definitely an art. I never was able to, you know, to perfect that art. And I, I stayed very emotionally attached to the problem. Like, you know, on deployments, this is our mission. This is what we're doing on a daily basis. Like success or failure, like this, this is falling on my shoulders and I'm going to freaking own it. And so when you take that attitude to like the civilian world and what you're doing on a daily basis, you're like, this is our mission. This is what we're doing. If we get kicked in the face, you know, it's, and it's very, it's very tough to, to be able to recognize that and pull yourself back. How do you, how do you find success in managing your emotions on a daily basis? What do you do? I just try to be aware of it. It's also good to have I'm, I'm very lucky to have like really good leadership on my team and just within my organization as a whole and everyone's generally looking out for each other. And so they're, they're willing to like pull you back a little bit. I think mean, that's what you want, especially if you're in more of like a ground level position where you're just going up and you're trying to churn up work and like make good things happen. You know, you need leaders who will kind of like pull the reins back a little bit and say, Hey, you're doing good, but Hey, 
take it back a little bit. Let's take a different approach. And so that's the kind of mentorship I need on a daily basis is someone who's going to be, be willing to like, tell me you're going a little too hard in this area. You need to redirect your energy and focus you know, to another area. So how long were you in Okinawa with your wife? We were there for 21 months. So through, okay. through this past fall. And then, then you, where do you move next? To, to Washington, D.C., where we're at now. Okay, gotcha. Yep. So you're in D.C., and then when did you, did you have a job? Did you have your job lined up before you got there, or what did that look like? Yeah, so once my wife got orders to the D.C. area, you know, I had a dream job lined up with Palantir, which is a company that I had worked with when I was in the Army, had, had seen the power of, you know, a combat multiplier in the form of, of technology. And I believe that's a company that is, is doing some really incredible things. At the time, I thought they're just doing incredible things for the military. As I learned, they're doing incredible things, you know, all over the world for all different, all different types of companies and organizations. And I was like, I want to work for a company like that. Um, so when I talk about putting all my eggs in one basket, and, you know, that was kind of my, my focus for a long time. And so, you know, I had, had, a, had a friend that had, had referred me and then applied, had a, had a pretty good pretty good process over the next couple of months and then was able to line it up where I could start, you know, soon after we moved to DC. Going back to when you left the military, what was it like for you from an identity perspective? Like you went in and you were in a portion of the military where you had to buy, I think, I believe everyone in the military buys into the ethos and the service and the sacrifice, but then you kind of drop into this new level working in the units that you worked in, what was that like for you during that separation period to start restructuring your identity as this like individual versus someone who was part of the military service? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's gotta be one of the toughest parts of the transition, especially moving out to Okinawa where you caught mm -hmm. within 48 hours, I went from being down working at a, at a company area with 160 rangers for you know 10 hours a day or whatever to working from home in a completely new country where i know no one but my wife so that that dynamic of, of the transition was was very tough to manage you know you're, you go from being surrounded by a bunch of alphas who just want to jack weight have a good time and, and talk about getting ready for the next training exercise to yeah, it's kind of like looking at a whiteboard on your wall, drawing out. Okay, what is my future? What is my midterm goals? Far term goals? You're right. It is tough. And I mean, to add on top of that, you are a male military spouse, which is a uh, hot take. The most marginalized community in the world. Uh, <laughs> like, there's like none of us out there. So, because you, you still are until your wife, you know, gets out here shortly. But, uh, but. What was that? What did you start doing or what was helpful to start kind of piecing yourself together in this next chapter of your life? Yeah. You know, I, I say I really didn't do a very good job of it off the bat. I tried to find, for me, I, I needed to find new ways to challenge myself. And so I, I kind of turned to, towards running in those first few months after running as a way to just like push myself because I felt that if I was out there grinding out there, you know, you know, logging miles that 
I was connected to that lifestyle and I wasn't a runner in the army by any means. I hated running. I only ran it. You know, my platoon sergeant made me, or there was a PT test. Like I did not want to run. And then all of yeah. a sudden now I'm, I mean, you had helicopters. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So yeah. And now I'm running because I want to run because it kind of made me feel connected to just really in the infantry. I mean, you're just doing hard stuff a lot of the times. Like it's not, it's not fun necessarily to put, you know, 50, 60 pounds on your back and go walk around for 10 days during a training exercise. It's like, it is fun because like we have a twisted way of making it fun, but reality like that stuff's hard and so i was like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna go run a lot uh this is hard but closer to like my identity is this you know when i was in the army i think that that's i mean it's good that you chose to do something again i think you're doing something cool which is you're engaging in hard activity which like physical exercise which i think is really important and you jumped right on the ngo opportunity which allowed you to dedicate yourself to a higher purpose, which is really important because the last thing you want to do is isolate yourself and then have nothing to do because then you're going to get stuck, which, which is really bad, which is really, really bad. I mean, and really, so from the start, when, when I, when I made the decision that, Hey, I'm, I'm going to go, go back to school. I'm going to work for this NGO. I knew I was going to have some flexibility with my day to day. I immediately was reaching out to uh, the, the Kadena, the base high school. And I'm like, Hey, who's the football coach? When, when are the workouts? I want to come help. But unfortunately, given that it was Japan during COVID times, they had shut, they shut down sports for like 18 months, man. So it took until like July. Of, of me being there. So about seven or eight months later. And then that's where I would say I really found that groove of being surrounded by a group, once again, a group of guys, you know, young men who, who were rallying together for, for a greater purpose. So w- once I found that coaching opportunity though, I mean, that that's, that's another one of those opportunities that, that changed my life forever. And yeah, I mean, I could, I could honestly probably speak for hours on, on that experience, but. What was, what was it like coaching football on an, on Japan? Like, is there a league? Like, what's the, what's the deal? With yeah. That? So actually it's, it's really cool when there's not a global pandemic and they have what's called their, their division, their league is called the far East and it's all military bases and their high schools in Japan, all over Japan. So there's two big high schools in Okinawa. There's like three to four high schools in mainland Japan. There's I think two high schools in South Korea. There's a high school in Guam. There's a high school, it's actually, an, there's an international school in, in Tokyo, not military related. There's an international school in Singapore. So there's all these schools out in East Asia and they just, they'll play like an eight game, eight game slate. And then they'll do a, a playoff, a little like two to 14 playoff. So it, in, yeah, in years past, I mean, they're traveling all over the place. Real, real cool experience. I mean, these, these high schools are big. I mean, the high school we were at was, was 800 kids. So a, a decent sized school for a military base in a, in a, you know, in Japan. So yeah, it was, but because of the time we were in, we, the first season, we only played team, the other team in Okinawa. So we played the same team four times. And then the next year we could only, we could only play teams in Japan because you couldn't, we couldn't get in and out of the country. We couldn't, South Korea was just a no-go. You probably really had their playbook down by the end of the season. Oh Yeah. I was more offensive minded. <laughs> Let me tell you, our defense, the coordinator, he knew every play that the other team was going to run. I mean, I think the last game of the season, we let up like 12 yards of total offense. 
beat him like 26 to nothing <laughs> because we just, you know, we had a good, a good defensive coach. Our players were super disciplined and you got discipline on defense. You know, it's coming. Yeah. They're not going to be able to gain any yards. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. A really interesting question I want to ask you about community as someone who was really living the military spouse life in Japan. How did you find community outside of your wife's job? Because I feel like that's kind of the story is like you're married to your military member. You go to wherever they go and then you make friends with the other spouses, which I just don't think is a really good idea. It's not a good strategy. So how did you do it? Yeah. So we... We had some mutual friends that were able to connect us with some people who lived out there. And I think those, those are some of our initial friends that, you know, we're, we're still close to, to this day, but for, for community, what, what really ended up helping us out was we got plugged in at a, at a church um, called pillar, which is actually, it's, it's a church that's outside a lot of military bases across the world. So there's, there was one in Okinawa. Great church. We felt right at home, small like community style Bible church. And they had small groups at the church that we got plugged into almost immediately. So we, we get, we start meeting most of these couples, they've got families, they've got a bunch of young kids. And then like my wife and I were like the one couple without any kids, but great group of people, you know, we would meet every Tuesday night for like three plus hours, just have fellowship together, eat together. And it was, it was something special. And that was a, a big turning point. I mean, that was about five months into our time in Okinawa, but my wife and I really identified that as a key turning point for us, like really loving our experience that we had living in Okinawa. When I talk to people about transitioning, it, there really are four things that I think are super important. And one of them is community. And within community, there are three aspects of that community, which are you need to be receiving mentorship from somebody. So you need to be following someone who is going where you want to go. You need to be walking with a group of people who are in the same boat as you, and then you need to be giving to somebody. And so I think for you, once you had your mentorship with the Three Rangers Foundation, you had the you were pouring into the football team and to the NGO. And then once you, once you found that church group of peers, that's where you kind of had all three of those necessary things. And you were at like, like that's perfect alignment. And then it's like, then you have as much community as you need to make it. And so I think that that's a, it's a very important point that I just don't think a lot of people think about when they're moving to a new base or leaving the military. It's, you need all of that community to like, you can't just do it by yourself. It's impossible. Yeah, man. You're making me smile. You, you make me want to go back. I just re rewind the, <laughs> the clock two years and just live it all over again. I mean, yeah, I, I've never thought about it that way, but that really, really was a, a, a trifecta during, during the transition. And I will call it, I call it my two year transition out of the military because it, it is a long process. Even if you jump right into a, another job. But yeah, that, that was, that was definitely a turning point once I hit that trifecta and I would say I was, able, I was, you know, fulfilled on a daily basis. Um, and like to that end, like I, I, part of me needed to go out and, and be isolated in a spot like Okinawa for a while. I think a lot of guys get, they get pretty wrapped up, wrapped up pretty tight physically, 
you know, mentally, emotionally by being in the military, like it, it wears you down. And so it, it was a good opportunity for me to, to unwind, kind of rewire my brain, make sure I was, you know, being a little bit more positive on, on my day to day. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do any of those things without the support of the mentors or my community groups or, you know, even the, the things you, the things you learn from a 15 year old high school kid will, will actually blow your mind. At times that I felt like they were mentoring and leading me because of the, you know, fulfillment I got out of working with some of those kids. That's awesome. How did you get hooked into the coaching? Was that just something that you did or was it something that like you just called them and volunteered? Yeah. So I, I just kept, I got a hold of, I got the head coach's email address and I kept blowing them up until they finally, the COVID regulations were, were released and they started letting them play again. Awesome. But yeah, I was, I was pretty persistent. He, he'll tell you now where we're good buddies, but he'll say, you know, coach Sanders used to annoy the hell out of me because he was always messaging me about wanting to get involved. So I love that. Yeah. Hey, you got to have persistence. The other thing that I, the other thing that I tell people, one of those four things that you need is initiative. You need to be able to, you really need to be the driving force behind everything that you do in your transition because you're there's really no other way to generate the momentum you need to make it. So I think that's awesome. You talked about the, when we talked on the phone before the podcast, you talked about like a football centered program for veterans. And I was curious, how does that hook into your coaching experience? Yeah. So, you know, start, start coaching out there the first week and, and there's a, a Marine infantry officer that shows up volunteering to coach as well. And he, I had never heard of this organization before, but he was involved. It's called Soldiers to Sidelines. It's another nonprofit that helps transitioning veterans, military spouses, not even transitioning. If you've been you know, out of the military for years, you can still get involved, but they put together coaching clinics, all, all different sports, anything from football, baseball, softball, lacrosse, sports performance. So you know, your strength, strength coach, type clinics. They put on these five-day clinics for free for all these these veterans and military spouses. And then after that, you can get involved with a another mentorship program where they can help develop you one-on-one with some of their staff. And then if that, that you get to a point where they can actually refer you and help line you up a, a coaching job. So at at first for me, it was, hey, let's let's get in on some of these clinics. Let's join this organization. You know, I love coaching. So you know, I went through their football coaching clinic, their sports performance clinic, was meeting with their founder. His name's Harrison Bernstein. Great dude. Their assistant, since assistant, assistant strength coach for the Washington Redskins, now commanders back in the day. You know, coached it. It was a DB's coach at Georgetown. You know, great dude. No military background at all, but he started this organization with the focus of helping, you know, veterans get into coaching. So they, they have just an, an unreal mission. Because it is just really so, so, so freaking smart. I mean, I'm a firm believer that if, if you want to make a positive change in, in the United States, it's going to come through like education and developing, you know, middle, middle school and high school kids. And so there's no better way to do that through sports. So the mission of that organization is, is incredible. And the, the Marine infantry officer that I was coaching with that first week who introduced me to the organization. He got lined up with a, a GA, a graduate assistance program, a graduate assistant position at UCLA and he's been there for over a year on the UCLA football staff. So yeah, yeah, pretty cool. So you talk about this, your time in Okinawa as your like two year transition. So you 
done it. You're in this kind of next phase where you've got a job, you're back in the States. What would you say was your biggest takeaway from that time in your life? If you were going to distill it down into advice for people who are going to follow in your footsteps. You know, I'd say I, I really did learn a lot. You don't have to do it. You, you can do more than one. I'll, I'll allow it. I mean, one of the biggest takeaways is going to be for me to ensure that my profession aligns with my passion. And while the two things, what I'm doing right now is not directly, you know, related to what I was doing in Okinawa. I at least learned that lesson, like down to my core, that what I'm doing on a daily basis, it's going to be fulfilling. I'm going to know that whatever my team, my company, whatever we're doing and in our in-state product, it's going to be making the world a better place. And it's going to be aligned with what I view as like my greater purpose in life. So I think that was the biggest takeaway for me. And I, I love what I'm doing right now. I want to be very clear about that. But going in, I had this mindset of, hey, if I don't, if I don't like working for this company, well... I might just go coach high school football because I know I love that. I know I loved every single second of doing that. And so just be, being able to, to really look at what you're doing on a daily basis and making sure that, that you're enjoying it and that you're, it's just ma not only making your company and your product better, but it's also making you as an individual better. It's, it's really important. How did you identify what your passions were? I guess they trial and error. <laughs> you just got to keep, keep figuring out, you know, what, what you love, what you keep coming back to. Um, I would say I, I really enjoy fitness. I'm very passionate about fitness and then I, I'm very passionate. And that's just because even though I left the army, I kept working out, you know, six, seven times a week. So it's like, okay, well, that's more than just trying to be fit for the army. That's a passion. And then just also, I, I think I identified a passion with, with some of my work, you know, when I was deployed with our team in Afghanistan of just generally a, a mission that helps, that helps with, that helps just advance, you know, the United States, like national security interests. It's, it's really cool to be a part of an organization or a team that just has a very clear, distinct mission. And it's like, this is what the United States needs. You know, they want to track down, you know, find, arrest these terrorists because they want to expect export terrorism to Europe, Southeast Asia, the United States. Okay. Can we go find those guys? That, that to me is, is awesome. Like you have a very clear defined mission and you know why this helps America and our allies. Very, very clear cut. In the military, it's a lot easier than, you know, wh where it might be outside of, outside of the defense space. You know, when I was working for the NGO, it was, Hey, there are communities that are very, very vulnerable to recruitment to violent extremist organizations. You know, they are super pissed off at the government. They feel forgotten. They have no education, no, you know, poor access to water. Okay. How can we go into those communities, gain their trust and convince them, Hey, guess what? There's a better life for you out there. You don't need to go join in this extremist organization. That's just going to ruin your life. So go in there, implement a water project, you know, provide them educational system assistance give them a little bit of rice, food, school supplies, anything that helps to, to build that trust, build a little bit of community organization and help them come together and, you know, 
realize that there's more to life than going out and fighting the government because you're pissed off about something ideological. So doing that and seeing, seeing like the, the, the fruits and like the payoff of, of what you're doing and, and why that's in that instance, it's not even, it's, it's partially aligned with the United States, but it's also aligned with the Philippine government and just generally something that I agree with. So seeing that payoff is, is I'm very passionate about that. And so I think that's kind of what led me today to be in the defense tech space where it's like, I know, you know, our, our product is going to be used, you know, by the department of defense, you know, by the United States to, to, to advance, you know, our interests. And, and I, and I trust that, you know, those are all, you know, very important, very important efforts that, you know, I obviously trust and agree with. I just kind of want to dive into this. So this NGO that you're working for in the Philippines, so are you going down there and setting up these relations with these communities? Yeah. So, or what was your involvement there? I actually only went down there for two weeks, two and a half weeks, partially because of COVID, but primarily because we had a, a really strong Philippine team. I um, mean, you know, our, we, our, we had our Philippine team lead is an absolute stud. You know, I, I stay in contact with him. He, he's doing great work. He, he has a team down there of about eight to 10, and they've got a lot of community cooperatives set up these community projects where, you know, you, you can just kind of see like this trail of their influence across the country. They've gone in, built these relationships, stand up a cooperative, stay in touch with those community leaders, see where they need assistance. And then you just watch that grow and grow and grow. And so he, he, he's the one that works his magic. He can go, you know, while the Philippines predominantly Catholic, there's a, a large Islamic population down in the Southern Philippines and in, in the Mindanao area. You know, he, he's not, he, he's not a Muslim, but he, he can go into any Islamic community and just right off the bat, build those relationships, build that trust. It's, I, I learned so much from him and, and how he ran his team and how he was able to build, build strong relationships with any community of any, any different background, any different industry, whether they were a farming community, a fishing community. Yeah. He, he knew how to work it. And so he, he was the one that did all the real work. I just, I just helped manage manage some of the larger operations and then help try to line up funding, whether that was through, through raising money or finding some, some grant or getting some contracts with the state department, any way possible to get them some funding so that they could actually go out and implement the great work they were doing. Man, that, that does sound like really fulfilling work. And that's super cool that that's what you were doing right out of the service. Like, I can't even imagine how awesome that would be to be able to give to a mission like that. I think that that's really amazing. What is something that you would advise people not to do based off of your transition experience? I mean, I said it, but definitely don't, don't chase the paycheck. Like there's, there's nothing, there's nothing in this world that like money is going to bring you and no one cares either. Like I can tell you as a grown man who is a few years removed out of the army, no one cares how much money you make, like at all. And that I, I've seen that as a driving factor for a lot of people, you know, not, not just, just veterans, just people in general who think that they need to find a job that, that makes them a lot of money. Well, guess what? If that job that makes you a lot of money also, you know, makes you work 80 to a hundred hours a week, is that worth it? Like, is that really what you want to be doing? Is that, are you, you're not, you don't have the free time to spend and, and to, to put, put effort into other things in your life. So I would just say, you know, if, when you're looking at jobs, don't be, don't be locked in on that paycheck, be locked in on the values of that company, what you're actually going to be doing on a daily basis, the people 
that are in that organization that you're going to work with on a daily basis. Those are the things you got to focus on. How did you become a person who has such a good grasp on holistic values? And what I mean by that is when you're not in the military anymore, your value set is this almost like mosaic where there's all these different pieces. Some are emphasized more than others, but it's all separate in the military. It's kind of all this one. It's all wrapped up in military service. And I think one thing that a lot of people struggle with when they get out is they assume that they can find, they find their purpose from a thing when they get out because the military was the thing that gave them purpose when they were, when they were serving. And so for you, you've talked about things like don't chase a paycheck, find a job that fulfills yourself. You found purpose in a lot of things that were not, they were a job, but not a job in like the breadwinning sense. So you've done this. How did you build your, mindset to be able to get to a place where that was just standard ops for you? Yeah. I don't really know how to answer that other than I, I would say I have had some of like the greatest leaders, like, like possible, like all the way from, you know, who, who my high school football coaches, you know, my, my parents, you know, great ROTC leadership in college worked for some incredible battalion commanders in the army. And I've just had all these, all these people that have poured into me over time, great influences, mentors, and like their, their advice and, and just listening to other people, I think has just been a huge influence in, in shaping, in shaping my direction and kind of like my outlook on life. What was one of the most impactful pieces of advice you got from one of those mentors? You know, I'll, I'll, I'll go a slightly different direction. So I can't remember anything explicitly. But you know, I, I have a, a very distinct memory of an influential moment where it was, you know, on a deployment and then, you know, I screwed, I screwed something up, you know, my buddy on another team screwed something up and we were pretty down on ourselves. And, you know, we had this battalion commander who pulled us in and he said, I understand this was just a, this was just a mistake. You still have my full my full faith and confidence in everything that you're doing on a daily basis, you know, go forward and be great. And I was just like, wow, like I, I've seen, I've had leaders who have kind of continued to, to break you down a little bit when you make a mistake, but for, for someone in that moment to, to pick you up and pull you up, it was just such an influential moment for me. And really, I think affect on a daily basis, the way I interact with people on, on any team that I'm a part of. Because I just know like, Hey, if someone screwed up and they're in, if they're in their lowest of lows, that's when they need someone to pull them up the most. So that's something I, I, I look back on and, and lean on a good day. And I think that freeing yourself up to let go of poor decisions and to be able to move on from those things is really, really important. And that's really cool that your commander gave you the freedom to freedom to do that. So before we, before we go, what is, what do you think is the, what is the piece of advice that you want to leave the listeners with? Yeah. So I was going to say the whole don't chase a paycheck, but I'll go, I'll go a different direction here. I'm going to say, challenge yourself, find ways to challenge yourself, make yourself better, make yourself more well-rounded. 
like continue, you did a lot of hard stuff in the military, continue to find ways to do hard things, you know, sign up for that, for that race that your buddies are doing, because guess what? Now you're going to go train for it and you're going to go run that race with them. It's going to be hard, but you're going to keep doing something to, to making yourself better and, and moving forward every day. Another p- great piece of advice I've heard is, you know, seek out failure every day, you know, keep, keep finding ways to, to fall because that's where you're going to learn. But yeah, for me, just, I'm, I want to keep doing hard things. It annoys, annoys the hell out of my wife because she's like, what fitness challenge are you doing this month? But if, if I got nothing going on in my day to day, I try to just find some way, you know, to keep, to keep growing. What's the, what's the, what's the upcoming fitness challenge for you? So right now I'm actually in like a, a power lifting mode. A couple of my buddies and then one of, one of the engineers on my team, they're just, you know, all deadlifting 500 plus pounds. And like, I haven't even deadlifted in like four years. Cause I had some, some hip yeah. issues. So like, all right, if all the guys, if they're, if everyone's deadlifting 500 pounds, I'm getting back there. I'm getting back to, to 500. Yeah. So yeah. There you go. You gonna compete in a meet, or are you just you just no? Doing, I'll, just gonna I'll just, just film film your one rep max, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. While you're ahead, no, I'll just I'll, I'll just <laughs> I'm not gonna do any meets, just just for fun, and it'll give me a break from okay. break from running because okay. running's bad for your knees. You know that's that's what I hear. I uh, that's why I ride I ride bicycles. Nice. So that's uh, yeah, that's my that's my cardio, and it's wonderful. But you know, it is yeah, what it is. Whatever works. Well, yes, sir. Austin, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I really appreciate you being willing to share your story, to be vulnerable with this audience, and to just give people guidance and advice so they can better prepare for for their transition. Yeah, man, you know, Billy, I really appreciate you having having me on. And then, you know, if anyone ever wants to chat about that transition process, you can always find me on LinkedIn and I'll answer, I'll answer those messages because there were a lot of veterans out there who answered my message when I was shooting them off two and a half years ago. Yeah. Yes, sir. Giving back is incredibly important. And you're, you're going to be, if you're what, if you saw that, if you came here from LinkedIn, Austin's tagged in the LinkedIn post. So uh, make sure to go check him out. And for all of you out there who are listening, thank you so much for taking the time to tune in to this episode. Uh, if you, like what you see and you want to support the channel, please like, subscribe, and share on whatever platform you're on. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Post Military Podcast. Peace.